I'm Carla with Race to Walk, and these are just some thoughts on a Sunday, and I hope you've been having a great weekend so far. But what are we going to talk about today? So I honestly didn't even know like what my little reflection was going to be um, until this morning. Uh, this week is we had our lunch party for an unexpected journal, and it usually takes me a big chunk of time to get the actual journal out, and then launch party is another chunk of time and added to that is uh we're having a shift in uh, responsibilities and who's doing what and um some uh i don't know how to explain it uh my friend zach who's been the kind of my partner in crime on that like we he's a managing editor and then i've just been doing like whatever basically needs to be done um he's stepping down and so uh, we've just always kind of done things and not really like explained, you know, he would just, I can't even explain it. We just worked really well together. We didn't really have to ex explain to anybody else. We just got things done. And so now that he's not there, I have to actually like line out what those things are. And, uh, I thought I was done on my part and then realized that there was a whole other section with launch parties that he normally does that we had to kind of realign. So that took actually a little more time, not a little more time, it took uh, more time, a chunk more time than it normally does. And normally it takes a good chunk of time because I do a lot of um, prep work and live stream elements. So um, I didn't really have time to think about what I was talking, going to talk about today. And there's quite a few things I could be talking about. But this morning I was thinking about, um, what I titled this was the connection between fear and idolatry. And a lot of times when we think of idolatry, we think about uh, reading in the Old Testament about the idols, the physical idols that people would, you know, put up like the golden calves in, in Exodus. And actually, what is it? Judges were uh, one of the, the Jeroboam that built the golden calf. Um, the Asherah poles, uh, they would have temples to... Um, pagan gods and so that's what we think of um, when we think of idolatry but what it is is when we're putting our trust in anything other than God so we can be idolatrous about a lot of pretty much anything and we can be idolatrous about other people we can be idolatrous about our jobs or our finances or even like our own works like putting our trust in our own works and I've this this whole entire season I, re I realized and when I talk about that like basically it kind of started in the whole like uh, life got pretty intense and um, uh, about September it is about when it all started but um, it was even before um, I got involved in helping the Afghans uh, with their immigration, but it was just kind of the beginning of like, not that I haven't done this, but I know that I have a tendency to overcommit and that I like need to be more realistic about time and things. And so, um, you know, it says, uh, you know, in Christ we can do all things. Yeah, we can, but just not all at once. So that's been kind of hard for me to do. Um, and I get ideas for things, and I thought, think I'm just not realizing I need to pace myself a little bit. So there's all these lessons that I should have been learning 
should have learned a long time ago that I haven't, that now I'm having to pretty much learn all at once. It's like God saying, okay, you're going to learn this lesson and we're going to, we're going to get through this and over this and we're going to be move forward past this. But, um, when it comes to idolatry, I, I think that for me, I guess part of it is like trusting in the way I, things I think I can do and the way I think, think things should be. And sometimes I get myself in, get into situations that, um, I think, okay, I'm not the person for it. And so I'm just going to let somebody else step up and do it. And yesterday in the launch party, we just kind of, it was a little different. Usually I have slides like scheduled that we're going to be doing in each intermission. And since this was kind of the last, it wasn't kind of, this was the last live stream with an issue that Zach was still playing the same role that he has been, even though it was kind of a transition. I just kind of wanted to do a little bit more of a reflection about where we've been as a journal and how it all started out. And, um, talking to Carice, uh, my friend Carice was the uh, co-host uh, with me yesterday. And uh, I was telling her a story. Like, I don't, I don't remember exact. I don't think I ever told this story, but we were going to, uh, when we first started the journal, 2018 is when we launched it. And that whole year was just basically figuring out what we were doing. And we completely winging it, bootstrapping it. None of us had any um, I mean, people have published journal articles before, but like actually running it, um, no. And we were just kind of figuring things out as we went. And then 2019, we started kind of expanding and networking a little more. And we had a really good launch initially because our, um, our first, our advent, first advent was in honor of Michael Ward, who wrote Planet Narnia. He's one of our professors. And so we had a lot of people that really, you know, like and respect Dr. Ward, um, participate in that, um, that initial, uh, that first advent issue. And when we first launched, our professors were really supportive. And so we really had gained a lot of acceptance, like in academic and professional circles for the journal right out of the gate because of the, um, you know, our, the connections that our, our professors had. And so 2019, we start like expanding that, like going to some conferences. So, you know, people like know who we are and what we do. And 2019, we went, the first conference that we went to that was a non-HBU event was at uh, Weatherford College. It's up in, well, it's in Weatherford, Texas, but it's basically out just on the side of Fort Worth. So Dallas, if people aren't familiar with Texas, Dallas and Fort Worth are basically right next to each other. And then Weatherford is just like this little, little town kind of adjacent to Fort Worth. But um, Carice lives in Fort Worth, and so she was going to come to the conference. So, I mean, I've done tables and stuff before, but it's not like going out like, you know, just talking to people is not, it's not a comfortable thing for me. I'd really rather not, you know, I, even when I did the martial remembrance, I was kind of like more of the, the, the sun, kind of getting things done kind of person, organizing things, putting things together, doing what needs to be done. I wasn't 
you know, up there talking to anybody or like really even networking with like the power players. I was just kind of like doing grunt work basically. And, uh, <laughs> this just reminded me this the last in 2013, when we were at the, the, um, the March of Remembrance at the, the Sunday March. I'm sitting there. We've, we've had six marches. It was a crazy, this whole thing was crazy going into it. And I'm kind of getting sidetracked, but it was back in 2013. We were final March. I'm sitting there we're thinking, okay, we're done. We got it. We're done. We had a little bit of a, a little blip in the beginning because they were going to have a candlelight service and we, nobody brought a lighter for the candles. And so the rabbi and the pastor are at the church are standing up there and they can't start the service because nobody has, can light the candles. And so Rabbi Dan says, Hey, does anybody have a lighter? And nobody wants to admit they smoke. So we just stand there. Finally, this guy gets up and gets it. But anyway, we, we get past that and we're in and we're starting to schedule. So I'm sitting there. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I am so wiped out at this point. And so the lady that was organizing the march, she was, there was this guy, Doug Stringer, that was up there kind of speaking. And she said, go get this. We had these plaques for the people that were supporters. And she said, go give this to Doug. I'm like, I'm not going up there. And she's like, go, go, go right now. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I go up there. I don't even know what I said. I think that one is actually online somewhere but it was at Bethel uh Trish Bethel's family it was there back in 2013 but I was like I don't even know what I said I had no preparation and she's like told me to go and go up there and I'm like oh my gosh but normally I would rather not it's just not even comfortable for me even like doing videos it makes me uncomfortable I'm usually glad when it's done but then doing it it kind of stresses me out a little bit but anyway since Crease was coming to this conference, right? We're doing a table for the journal. I'm thinking, okay, great. Crease is going to be there. So I can just sit back and like not have to do anything. And I'll let her do the talking because she's the ex extrovert. I mean, she's an extrovert with a capital E. I am not. So she, we get there and she comes. She has laryngitis. She can't talk. And it's like, God was saying, nope, you're not. You're going to be out here talking too. Like these things, like I was just had already decided that I was not going to like engage in that way. And so basically the person that I was relying on to do that got kind of taken out, disabled a little bit. Um, same thing sort of happened when I was, uh, I used to volunteer in the healing room and um, it, it was connected to them. It wasn't the same people who organized the March of Remembrance had the healing room and so that's why I wanted to um, start volunteering there was because I had volunteered with the march most of the people that were really heavily involved in getting it done and going had um, were involved also in the healing room volunteering in that and they would tell these stories and I was like okay you know I don't they're telling these stories of people being healed I'm like okay I mean if that's going on I want to go see that so I went through the training and um, started doing, um, you know, just in the rotation for the volunteering. And there's this one lady who um, she's very, like, she get massive words of knowledge. Like, you go in there, she'd like totally read your mail. I mean, she just like would, you know, see visions, words of knowledge. She had experience in deliverance and everything. And 
So they would have these people, like these three, there would be three people in, in the room itself that were praying for the person. And then there would be other people, you know, like in the check-in and there was this room where people would just go and wait. They called it the soaking room and they'd pray silently for them. But the place, the room where people would be prayed for for healing, they would have, there would be the lead person and then what they called the servant, the person that would like take notes and um, just uh, give, you know, like give the communion and uh, like they need water or tissue or whatever. And so I really liked doing that because I would just be able to sit and watch and see what was going on. And then there would be another person that would just be praying for the lead. And so one, one time when I was volunteering, I was scheduled to be with this lady the one that like, you know, very, um, I would say very gifted spiritually, but I guess she's just very open in practice in, in operating the gifts of the spirit, I guess. So I was, I was in there with her and this first time I had been, you know, serving in that capacity with her as the lead. And so I'm thinking I'm going in and I'm thinking, okay, I'm just same kind of thought. I'm just gonna sit and watch. You know, I don't really need to do anything. I just need to sit and watch. And so, again, I go in there and uh, I I have another, I have a video about kind of how I first got more aware of, like, the spiritual warfare. It's on my website. It's called, um, I can't remember what I titled, titled it, but the video is on the book Invisible Enemies by Jim Croft and tells a story about kind of how, uh, my paradigm changed about like um, spiritual warfare, like the reality of you know demonic entities and how that can affect us physically. And um, so, anyway, so I'm sitting in there with this lady, and she, this this girl comes in. She's uh, I think she's like 13. She was just a little bit older than my oldest daughter at the time. And when she came walking in the door, I thought I saw something by the door like it looked like just kind of like you look and then you go you go back and look and it wasn't there but as I was looking it looked like it was kind of like this sort of eight shape but it was shadows with like is it blue blue light sort of kind of highlighting it and I wasn't um I hadn't seen anything like that before and I questioned it and I also question things that I see sometimes because my eyesight is really bad and then sometimes I'm thinking okay are my contacts freaking out and also as I was sitting there um I'm thinking well if there was something actually there then this other lady would no she would say something right and when I was talking to her about what had happened in this session later she said I told her that because I didn't tell her that night and she said, oh, you should have said something. We could have taken care of that right then. I was like, oh, okay. Well, anyway, so um, this little girl came in, and she was, she was little. I mean, she, I guess she was a teen, young teen. But she had been to the doctor, couldn't find any, they couldn't figure out what was wrong. And she was having a lot of um, internal problems, like a lot of pain internal and uh she, like, it wasn't, I don't think they identified any ovarian cysts, but that's kind of what it's, some of the symptoms that she had, that's what it sounded like. 
And so um, she'd been this. I mean, she'd been going to different doctors for nine months. They had no, no, couldn't figure anything out. So she came to the healing room, and that's actually what. That's what, how a lot of people were actually. I mean, we're in a very religious um, area. There's a lot of churches, but we really didn't have a whole lot. I mean, you'd think we'd have a lot of people come to the healing room. We really didn't. But anyway, so she was in there, and the lady was. She was uh, couldn't really get a feel for what was going on, and. She said, uh, so she got up to pray for her. She was standing behind her and prayed for her. And so I'm sitting in the chair watching. And she said the only word that she was getting was adhesions. And so she's standing there praying and I'm watching. And as she's praying and speaking against these adhesions, I could see something like, um, it was like, you know how, when you see a movie like and the they kind of portray like something invisible moving it's like kind of like this wave or the shimmer it's kind of it's kind of like that it was like there was something attached from like the, the top of her chest down to her abdomen and when the lady said adhesions it was like this boom thing like it hit and it took a hit but it didn't come loose it was like still there and so i said uh, when I was talking, I said something moved when you said adhesions. So she had the rest of us pray for this this little girl. And um, I had, she, the, the girl had her, her hands on her abdomen. And I had my hand over her hands. And as we were praying, it's like I could feel, it was like the Holy Spirit was right there. Like this, I could feel the Holy Spirit like hovering right there, like they're right there, like ready to heal, ready, ready to move. But there was some sort of restriction. And it was, it's like I knew that whatever it was that was going on with her, it was intact against the children that she would have. She was young, but, you know, there's a lot of young girls that have, like, problems with one or the other, and they have hysterectomies when they're very young. And so I knew that that's what it was. And it was um, it was really disturbing to me because, and she's so young. She's, again, just a little bit older than my um, oldest daughter. And it was another reminder that these things that, uh, you know, we... we in, in the West, we really divorce like physical from spiritual. There's an interaction between the two, and um, sometimes, sometimes I think there—I don't think there can be blocks to healing because of some spiritual obstruction. Um, in that other video, I, I'm not going to go into the whole story, but I do think that I don't think that uh, demonic entities can cause problems for us physically, but I do think that they can make existing problems worse. And uh, I also think that they can sometimes be blocks to healing because, you know, that's what we're, our bodies are made to work properly and our bodies are designed to be healed. And so, um, anyway, that was, it was like, I was, 
I didn't say anything because at about whatever that was that was there, I, I don't know. But I didn't say anything because I was having really having more faith in this other lady about because I'm thinking, okay, if God wants to do anything, she's going to know and take care of it. And I should have faith in, you know, not faith in God, right? Faith in God in that, in that relationship with God. It's not about that was the whole point of the, um, the temple curtain being ripped apart is that so we can have, we don't need a mediator that we can have be in relationship with God. And so, um, the same thing is with this whole adventure with, um, trying to work out immigration. Uh, I was brought in with, to this, with, uh, by Mark and, um, I, <laughs> I was just, I just said yes to, you know, I was filling in was a Bible study. That's, that's what I was doing. And I joined in other ones cause I thought, okay, well I can do some research and help and things. And, but it was, I think for me as well as for the people in the group, we were putting really more trust and reliance on Mark than we, than we should have. And even though I know that like at the very beginning, just like looking at the scope of everything, I knew that uh, it was gonna, going to have to be God opening the doors because no one person can do it on their own, right? And money alone is not going to fix it. And uh, it's going to have to be God opening the doors. And I knew that. But it's so, even though you know something, even as you go along, it can be so easy to, to like, take back to shift the focus, right? To shift the trust. Like, I know, I know this. And even, like, stuff for myself, like, we'll get some, um, we'll get some success and some movement. And then I'm thinking, okay, yeah, we can do this. And then it's like a stall. And I'm thinking, okay, where am I putting my reliance on? Because I'll start feeling this pressure and this, this anxiousness. And I'm not, am I really resting in and abiding and believing that God's going to bring these things about and it's going to orchestrate them. And it's a constant thing. It's like, you're never like, never arrived at that. Right. You you always have to do this course correction of like, okay, yes. And just being, I think it's important just to be aware of, um, the feeling that it is when you start, at least for me, like I, when I start feeling a certain way, then that usually means my, either my priorities off. I'm not, I need to reset my mind a little bit. So, but as far as the title, like how fear connects with this idolatry, I guess that goes back to fear is a lack of trust, right? We have a lack of trust in that God's going to do what he says he's going to do, that he's a good God, that he, he loves us, that he wants good things for us. If we don't believe he is a good God, if we don't believe that he wants good things for us, how can we trust him for it? And so if we have a fear of that, like... I think that, you know, going back to in the idols in the Old Testament, 
it wasn't about the God itself, them, itself. It was about what the people thought that the God could do for them. So the, the passage that people get all worked up about in First Timothy about the women will be saved in childbirth, it was because they were, that whole passage about, is about, um, addresses the um, cult of Artemis and uh, their worship practices. And women put their trust in her to deliver them, see them safely through childbirth. And Paul is writing and saying, the Lord will protect them through childbirth, not Artemis. You know, you don't need to go through all these worship practices because that's what they did. That's rather than taking prenatal vitamins, they would go and they would, you know, have these, these uh, worship observances to Artemis and he's saying, no, they just, God would keep them safe. It's the same thing with, um, in the Old Testament, they had gods for different things, right? That would protect from different things. And the, uh, actually, fun fact there's I, people aren't aware of this um orthodox uh, observant jews will not eat meat and uh cheese and dairy in the same meal and so some of them will even have two entirely separate kitchens so that they don't mix at all like any sort of meat element or dairy element won't meet, won't mix and they take that that comes from i think it's listed in three Three passages, I'm not sure where, I think it's Leviticus or Deuteronomy, about, um, it says, you shall not boil a kid in its mother's milk. And it's it's actually, in, in two places where it's listed, it's right before, um, like, harvest observances, right? So it's very clearly tied, tied to the harvest. The other one it's switched and it's between the harvest and the uh, like the dietary laws. So what the rabbinic interpretation of it was meant, meant that, oh, you can't eat the um, dairy and meat together. That's, that's what they came up with. Uh, there was a Jewish scholar in um, Middle Ages, Nomadides, I might not be saying that right, he thought that it was probably had to do with uh, Canaanite uh, fertility practices, that it didn't have to do with anything dietary, and that's it was really had to do with the harvest and how you, you know, prepared your offering, and grain offering. And then in uh, the beginning of the 20th century, they found a discovery, a library at Shemra, that actually confirmed that um, that speculation that he had, that is what it was. It was part of a fertility, uh, um, like for, this is a practice that they would do so that they would have a good harvest. And that is what the warning was. It was like, don't do this. Don't do what everybody else is doing to thinking that's going to ensure your harvest. You just worship me. And so um, I've told my Jewish friend this. I'm like, there's actually not a prohibition against eating a cheeseburger, but she doesn't. She still won't eat meat dairy. But anyway, um, it's like, where are you putting your faith in? And so it's easy to read the Bible and think that it doesn't have anything like those specific types of passages and think that it doesn't have anything to do with us. 
but it does. I mean, we should be looking at that and looking at different areas of our life and thinking, okay, well, who am I putting my trust in for this? Who am I putting my trust in um, for my job? Am I putting my trust in God for this? Or am I putting my trust in friends and connections that I have? And so where you're putting your trust is going to determine your actions. So if you think that your job security is based on other people, then your behavior is going to be influenced by that. You're going to do things to ensure those relationships or that connection stays stable. If you're putting your trust in God, that may be be leading you to do something that may jeopardize those relationships. So, um, anyway, those are my thoughts. I, I think that, um, still kind of, still kind of working through that because I, in, in all of these different situations, all these different things that need to have to happen, uh, I have in my head, I think they're going to happen a certain way. And then it's like a continual surprise how things turn out. So it's been, it's been a very, um, intense few months, but anyway, those are my thoughts for this morning. And, uh, just to go, I'm going to start with, um, what has been, who is helping right now? I'm going to give a little update, but I want to go over current supporters. So like I said, my, I got involved with this, um, through my friend, uh, Mark Ritchie. His website is markritchie.me. He, uh, was a commodities trader as a profession, but, um, he says, I invest in orphans and he has done, um, uh, ministry all over the world. Um, I became aware of him by when I read his book, Spirit of the Rainforest. I have a couple of reviews on that. His spiritual autobiography is God in the Pits. And um, I've told him that uh, he should, that's not available uh, as digital format right now, but you can get a print version. I told him he needs to get that done and I can do it for him, but, uh, we have not got started on that yet. And, um, I'm also telling him that I think he should do a combination of God in the pits and my trading Bible. Cause I think those would be a very good pairing, but we will see if that, I'm sure it will happen. It's just, I'm not sure of timeline. So anyway, if you go to his website, you can always, um, look at the books that he's done. Second thing is, uh, Don Shire, uh, Don Shire Ministries. He is a person that is partnering with us. Um, he has a ministry he's done. He also does uh, missions the world over. And so he has a ministry that if you donate to, go to his website, donshireministries.org, and donate, select Raise to Walk uh, for the donation. This will be, those donations will be used to this effort for um, helping Afghan Christians. So anyways, that is Dawn. And then more locally people, um, these are people that have been helping like, since the very beginning, my friends with an unexpected journal and the, uh, apologetics program were the first people that were helping, um, get birth certificates for babies and, uh, renew expired passports and, 
helping th th throw them their first Christmas party. And so they were the first ones that helped, as well as uh, my friends and my Bible study at Kingdom Citizens. And then I've had other people that have been helping that I know from um, they're in my school district that have been involved in things there. And my friend Leslie, who teaches Hebrew classes. So she uh, has done a few um, uh She's done a few things uh, with the group, and uh, we have plans for others. But if you are, she does teach Hebrew via Zoom. And um, if you're interested in that, her email address is in the description. And then the other people that have been um, supporting this from the beginning is the the Nest on in Kingwood on North Park. And so um, also in my business with Legacy Marketing, if you any uh, clients that want to donate, I will match up to match the donation up to 20% of the total of the services. So, and then the second thing, if you would like to do a more direct support for um, besides donations for the people, we do have language services, both um, classes. If you'd like to learn um, uh, Farsi, Dari, or Urdu, as well as if you need any translation services. So uh, that is one endeavor that the people are working on uh, because things are difficult and they need to um, find a way to make a living, right? So anyway, I'm going to give an update about where we're at. Um, what's happened this week? So we had, I mentioned last week, uh, that we've had a new baby coming. That baby is here, and uh, she was born on Monday. And I haven't talked to her, her mom, but according to the girls, she didn't have to have a C-section. So that was a very uh, good thing um, because that was what the expectation was. Uh, her, the mother had gestational diabetes, and they thought they were going to deliver by C-section. She did not have to do that when I... Her daughters are uh, two of the girls that I meet with for um, classes, and um, she was home already on, when I taught them on Tuesday morning. So, anyway, um, other kind of cool thing—not kind of cool—is a cool. There's a couple few, a few cool things. So, I don't know if I mentioned this on here before, but I connected with somebody who has like, multiple connections in like the evacuation and Afghan, Afghan community. And he had shared, I had mentioned that I worked on an unexpected journal. He shared it with somebody who has an online school for Afghans. And the person said, oh, great. You know, I am going to put that in our uh, resource library for um, under Christianity because, you know, they teach they teach classes. Most of their students are, almost all the students are Muslim families, um, but girls have been banned from education in, in Afghanistan by the Taliban. And so they are primarily teaching girls, but they will also teach boys um, in these online classes. And they will have Afghan tutors. So they have the online curriculum and then they'll have Afghan tutors that help the students through that. And so they were adding a, a portion for, you know, just so as like, you know, like we have world religions, they were adding a portion on Christianity. And so they added an expected journal to it, which I thought was like so amazing. And then I've noticed in my 
um, in my analytics for my YouTube channel, there was a spike in the views on the uh, superheroes uh, launch party. So I can't be sure that's who was watching it, but based on the time and the, the number of people, the number of views, I think it might have had to do with that school from that referral and so if that's just the case I think that's really awesome but I connected with them uh, this past week for a couple of things uh, one of our one of our people um, really really good investigative skills and there have been a couple of times when I've had people contact me wanting something and uh, wasn't quite sure about whether they were sincere or not or the validity of it and he's researched researched them and found out that you know they they were basically uh scammers so i mentioned that a couple of weeks ago the guy that was um claiming to be a christian persecuted christian ended up being a muslim this this person found that out and uh then someone else had a person that they were trying to help and the story was that the the wife was uh, had a was going to be delivering a baby and uh, the baby was in a breech position and they had six hundred dollars for delivery and Pakistan because this is the thing like if they do not have a valid visa they can't go to the hospital and so they have to go to private hospitals and pay cash and so those that's those are actually real situations but this person's story um he was checking in with this contact we have for you know like medical services and so this 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 person in our group checked out his story oh i know why because he's a this is why i asked him about it because he's an RN and his wife is a midwife. I thought, okay, well, maybe they can, you know, I don't know how much they can help in a if the baby's breached, but maybe they could help. So he, he investigated and the baby had been born in January. So it's like they, they, what I'm assuming is that they probably were telling the story and they got help that way and it worked so well that they've continued to use that story to try to get money and it's the thing it is a, a desperate situation but it's just an example of like how many how how many um need is real but not all the stories are so anyway this person that i uh that had been investigating this I sent a message to the guy who is the, um, he does these daily updates, but he's, he's running this online school. And I said, well, if you need any, um, anything in researched and investigated, um, this person is really good. He's a member of our Bible study. He's really good investigative skills. He's done this for us a couple of times. And so in that introduction, it comes about that they're going to be hiring more tutors female tutors and so hopefully I forwarded it to our Bible studies but I'm hoping that that will be a little bit of income for at least a couple people maybe a couple families if they can if some of the women can be hired as tutors for this online school 
So that's pretty cool. And then I was also invited into a group for this online school um, where they're going to be discussing like what curriculum to um, to uh, have in the Christianity section. I was just explaining my background, and I'm like, yeah, I've you know been teaching via Zoom, and um, I went through HBU's apologetics programs. I've been taught by these people, and so you know I have. I, I do have a lot of contacts of like solid, solid theologians, and so I, that's really cool. I, I just, uh, you know, it's one of those things where this is. Would this? They could have had an, an online school at any time, right? But would they have the reach that they have? Would people be interested in it if it hadn't been for the fact that the Taliban have completely banned girls from? getting an education so you know what the enemy meant for evil god will use for good so this is um that these girls are going to have the opportunity to see themselves you know as women in a different way as well as um at least being that they they choose what they want to learn so they choose the classes that they want to be taught and have an opportunity of learning what Christianity is and you know how how we see things so anyway I thought that was cool that was this week uh, and then the other thing this is like it's just like things are just so weird it's like I guess my brain has like expanded a little bit in capacity but to handle like bizarre things but maybe this doesn't sound so weird but I was just okay so it's Wednesday or Thursday. I don't remember what day. One of the people in our group, this is one of the college kids that are shipping in college, um, that had to come back from Afghanistan because his little sister had to get, had the UNHR interview. Same family. So he sends me a message. He said, Sister Carly, you should um, contact the the embassy, in, uh, the Spanish embassy, because they're issuing visas to Afghans. And I'm thinking, Okay, so I so they're they're not answering their emails. Like if Af basically, if Afghans send an email asking for an interview, they're not they're ignoring them. But if you can get in, they're processing them. I guess I don't know. So you have to have a connection. So I guess it's the next thing I'm gonna have to learn how to get diplomatic <laughs> contacts. But um, I was like, okay, so I start sending emails. Like I don't know. Like where do you even start with this? I don't know. And so then on. Friday, uh, he's the tra he's translating, and I was just saying, you know, all of the contacts other than a couple have come from people in the group. You know, I was like, we've been working as a team. You know, different people get get contacts for different things, and we are working together. So now, like whatever we need, we have a contact for basically. We just need the funding to get all the things we need, and. He said, oh, yes, he's like, I have. And then he starts telling me that he has been, he has, so he he is one of the translators, very, very good English skills, also translates for Urdu. He teaches English classes now, and he'll also be, like, do, like, translation. He'll go with people, like, for appointments and things. Like he said, I took a friend to a hospital because I guess, I, I, it, what it seems like, they haven't said this specifically, it seems like, 
most hospitals. I don't know if he's translating because his friend couldn't speak Urdu or if they were speaking English at the at the hospital. I'm not sure. So he does that, but I found out he's also been going with Afghans for interviews for visa interviews. He said, "Yeah, I've been, I've been to the um, visa interviews for." many people and he goes with them and he meets with them ahead of time like a couple days ahead of time and preps them for the questions as well as helps them get their documents together and then he goes in with them and he said all the people that i've went in with um they've gotten their visas approved except for one he said that diplomats the new diplomat and the last person that he went in with did not get it and i said so do you have contacts with them? He said, oh, well, it's this, this lady with this or NGO that's been getting these, uh, these appointments with the Spanish embassy. And I said, do you have contact with the lady? And he said, no, or, I don't know. He was going to ask. He didn't have a direct contact with her. He's like, but I've been doing these interviews. And so I've become famous among all these, these um, people that are getting referred by this NGO they know to call him to to get prepped so they can get their pieces. So I was like, oh my goodness, like he's like he's legendary among people like getting prepping to get the visas approved and then the head of our house church, somebody got word of knowledge with his name. It's like just in among all these legends in the making. But anyway, I said, Okay, he's and he has a list of questions that they ask. And he said, yeah, SIVs, they don't ask for any questions. And for UNHCR and for the Spanish embassy, he's been to these interviews. I'm like, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. This is amazing. So I, we have something I didn't even know we needed yet. Like, we have somebody who can help prep people for these interviews. So that's what we need to be working on. Um, it's getting, getting it ready so people know what they need and know how to respond and so that's amazing so that was this week uh not positive things this week um we i'm not even sure how to explain this but uh pakistan is has has been very hostile for um for afghans and they, it was bad last year, and it's gotten even worse this year. And they've really restricted visas that are going out. And so um, the other thing that, they're, that they've started doing is this was just announced this week. If they didn't have a valid visa, they were always supposed to, they were all, always at risk at being deported or arrested and then have to pay a bribe to be released. So that's always been going on. Um, they've always had to register with the local police department. Like if they were, you know, when they rent a place, you're supposed to register there. And um, so that's that's current. But what the, what's changed this week was that they they have to have that registration. So they're registered in a certain neighborhood and they're not allowed to leave that registration or that, that neighborhood. So 
like in Kingwood. If you have to, if you lived here, you have to register in Kingwood and you can go beyond the, the bounds of Kingwood. Otherwise, you'd be arrested. There was a, a story this week that 15 Afghans were arrested. Pakistan isn't saying why, and they're not sure whether it was because of this or not. So things have gotten even more, um, more difficult. Uh, there was one person that I was uh, connecting with that had asked Arlie if he could um, connect with, or had if he had somebody that could connect with him. And he contacted one of his contacts with a, a ministry in Islamabad. And the guy was you know, uh, communicating back and forth, you know, with the person that I'd asked them to contact. And the person that Arlie had talked to was, is Pakistani. And so I saw a screenshot of the discussion and it's just, it was kind of obvious that the guy's like, you know, he's just going, Oh, Hey, come meet me, come meet me for lunch. And it's like, um, they can't do that. You know, they can't just hop on, you know, a bus or you know, he doesn't have money for a car. He can't, he can't, he can't even leave his, his little district now because of those rules. I mean, he has a visa, but he, he can't do that. And it was just, um, it's just a reminder of like, cause I know that we, sometimes we do, and we say things in the United States that we just have no awareness of the fact that other people don't have the same, they just don't have the same capability for whatever reason to do those things that we take for granted. And that was true in that situation. You know, guys like, oh yeah, I'll go and do this, but not realizing the restrictions that the person we were asking for for help was operating under. So anyway, that was this week. And was there something else? I don't remember. I don't remember. It's been, uh, seems like there's other things, but I forgot. Like I said, I had a lot of, a lot of stuff going on with, um, just prepping for the journal launch party. But anyway, I do want to say one thing. This is, this has just been my irritation for this week. Um, if people are interested in this and they're trying to get a vibe on what all is going on. Just be aware that sometimes what people are saying isn't actually true. So just for example, beginning of February, Denmark, there's this article, there's, this is just one article, but there are multiple articles that came out about Denmark and Sweden offer protection to all women girls from Afghanistan. And then this is the, the next, um, I should have gone to this, but anyway, they're just saying that their, their, uh, commission has decided that they're going to, you know, regard, just give all these women and girls, just approve the asylum applications. So when you read that article, what does that make you think when you, when you read that, what does it make you think? It, I mean, all women and girls, right? It looks like that's an option, doesn't it? So another article that I read said that they had 
approved five asylum applications. That's basically what it was. And, but then, so that was on the 9th. And then this is something that came out the end of February. And it's an explanation of what they really mean by this decision to grant asylum. And so what they really mean is that it's not really all women and girls. It's just people who are already in Denmark because they can't apply for asylum like the U.S. They can't apply, you can't apply for asylum in the U.S. unless you're standing on U.S. soil. And same thing with Denmark. You can't apply for asylum unless you're standing, unless you're physically in Denmark. And so they're like, we, they made this announcement, right? That they're going to uh, approve asylum for all women and, and girls from Afghanistan. And then it's like, oh my goodness, we're overwhelmed by this. All these calls. Well, don't, don't use misleading words and make it seem like you're doing something that you're not. No, you approved five asylum cases. You're not approving all. So anyway, and then the end, this is a kicker. It's like there, it's almost like there, there's no visa path for people from Afghanistan. They have no visa path. And so then if you look at that last paragraph, it almost sounds to me like they're blaming it on the Taliban for not issuing passports and for, um, Pakistan, who isn't issuing visas to the uh, to to Afghans, and it's almost like they're saying, "Oh, well, it's their fault," and so that's you can't get to a Danish embassy, and so that's their excuse for not issuing visas. Well, hey, guess what? There's a lot of people that are sitting in Islamabad right now who have passports, who are ready to go. So, no, that is not an excuse, but it's like people like putting like putting them themselves out like oh yeah look at us and and then they're promoting it it's it's not i'm sorry but the fact that you have a few people that are able to get up to this nordic country that you said okay yeah we'll let you stay and we're not going to ship you back really not that big of a deal really don't think it is so anyway that was one irritation and here's the other thing that i i i debated about like when to do this and um but i just uh got a clarification on a couple things this week and let me see i um i'm starting my hall of shame list right now. so these are people who are not only not helping but actively harming. And the first one on this list is IDS International. So part of the reason this, this just really grinds my gears is that, okay, so let me explain who they are. They are a government contractor. They did different projects in Afghanistan. We have two families that worked on one of their projects in Afghanistan. And they Work, but they worked for an Afghan company for contracting on this U.S. project. Because of this, even though they didn't work, weren't direct employees of IDS International, because they worked directly for on this project, they are eligible for an SIV visa application. So this is 
the guideline for how, what they have to do. So it starts with they have to make an application and they have to have a recommendation letter from the senior most official, senior most government contact with, uh, with the U.S. on the on the project. So the senior most person with the the U.S. agency. So IDS International has to issue this recommendation letter. That's at the beginning. Right? They have to, before they can even apply, they have to have that recommendation letter and then they start in through this whole long process. So if they don't have the letter, they can't even start this. They are nowhere. They can't start until they have the letter. So in back in De December, I talked to the husband. So this is just so we have some reference. These two families. They're the brother and sister of our translator in Washington State. This is the lady who uh, came here 15 years ago, accepted Jesus, did not go back. She was she was granted asylum. She's a U.S. citizen. She's brought her her parents and youngest sister here in a family reunification visa. And uh, her youngest brother was killed by the Taliban when she became a Christian. Her family has a threat letter from the Taliban saying they will kill them all. So this, this happened 15 years ago. Two of her siblings escaped to Europe through Iran. And there were these, these two, this brother and sister, that are still that were still in Afghanistan when it fell to the Taliban. And the, the brother-in-law and the brother worked for IDS International. So just as a reference... She's had, for this family, they've had a family reunification visa filed for both of them since 2015, so that's eight years. They're eligible, the, the brother-in-law and the brother are eligible to file um, SIV applications because of their work, right? So that's visa path number two. They also qualify for uh, humanitarian parole. She paid an attorney to file that um, humanitarian parole application. Nothing has happened on humanitarian parole applications. Nothing has happened on the family, family reunification visas that have been applied since 2015. And they can't start. Their applications don't even start the process until they have that recommendation letter from IDS International. So December, I had a conversation with the brother-in-law. He told me that they got their letter and that it had moved, let's go back, that it had moved from COM approval. So it goes from, you have to have the letter, then it has to go and it has to be somebody supposedly checking it to make sure their information is complete. And then it goes and it sits in COM approval, which is with the State Department. And then they have to say, okay, yes, you meet this. And then they go through the rest of this. Okay, so I was talking to the sister this week our translator in Washington State, and she said it wasn't from IDS International. Because I said, well, why doesn't why doesn't her brother have it? The brother-in-law got this letter. Why doesn't the brother have it? She said, oh no, he doesn't have it. It wasn't the letter. wasn't from IDS International. It was from the head of the Af Afghanistan company that contracted with IDS International. And I was like, what? I I swear. 
I said, well, they said it moved to comma approval. And she said, I don't think so. I don't think so. So I don't even know where it's at. But what she said, they didn't even get that letter. So for IDS International, this is like, this is from a year ago. They have this whole entire press release going out, making a big deal about how they're working with no one left behind to do evacuations from Afghanistan. Okay, maybe, I don't know, like this is their government contractor. They do government services. They should be understanding this a little bit better than I do. But my understanding is that it doesn't matter. Those, those evacuations. What could this an evacuation do if they evacuate them to a place like Pakistan that's going to deport them back to Afghanistan because they can't get their applications processed because you're not giving them the letters? Basically, oh, it makes me very, very, very angry. So this is, let's just do a little bit of a reminder. This is March 26, 2023. The Doha Agreement, Trump signed that, signed that agreement in February 2020. So they knew about the withdrawal for over three years now. We know that Trump was going to try to pull out in January so he could cause a maximum amount of chaos for the transition. That was January 2021. The agreement was for a withdrawal in May of 2021, the actual agreement or the actual withdrawal was in August 2021. They've had plenty of time to get their act together to get letters, recommendation letters for these SIV applicants. And the SIV process is not new. This is not new. It's years old. So the, the requirements are clear. So making a big deal about... Ugh, about, oh, we're evacuating people. Get your act together and get people the letters that they need. So here's the deal. These are, this is the leadership of IDS International. So Chris Bauer, Chief Executive Officer, Mark Mikulowski, President of Finance and Administration, Jamie, Jamie Willoughby, Vice President of Business Development, Joel Franceschi, He's a program manager, U.S. Army security assistant, training management organization. Joel, did you not tell your people how all of this works? And then there's a couple, Mike, Michael Eicher, program manager, overseas building operations. Yeah, this is a guy that would have been over those, those projects. Again, get your act together. And Erica Skinner. Another program manager. Oh, but then we have more. We have more. We have a board of directors. So let me go back and get this just so I can see it. We have Nick Dowling, chairman of the board. Oren Strauss, strategic advisor. So we have, we have board members. Oh, oh, but there is more. There is more. Now we also have an advisory board. So let's look at this here. Okay, this is the advisory board. Joseph Bender, who is he with? Oh, he was the chief of staff for US Cybercom. Okay, who else? Kenneth Tovo, he is a recognized leader in special operations, strategic planning and leadership. He is the president of DOL, Inc. Enterprises, 
consulting firm. All these people, they're supposed to be experts and nobody can get some letters out. Yeah. Okay. Edward Cardon, advisory board member. He's, he's worked from a company from the U.S. Army Services Component Command. Barbara Dobrensky, advisory board member. She's a foreign policy expert and former diplomat specializing in national security affairs. David Hanley, advisory board member. David Hanley is an independent consultant working with a variety of organizations for whom he provides guidance and strategic planning. So did you give them any guidance on their obligations to uh, maybe just get some letters out so the people that work for them aren't killed by the Taliban? How about that? Yeah, that would be great. James Kunder. He's a principal at Kunder Real, Real Associates, an Alexandria, Virginia-based consulting firm specializing in international development. And Peter Singer. He's a strategist at New America and an editor at Popular Science Magazine. So you would think somebody that's an editor would have enough reading comprehension skills to understand what the requirements are for SAV applicants, right? Yeah. And then there is Bob Wood, an advisory board member. He's a lieutenant, retired lieutenant general and is currently the executive vice president of AFCEA. Okay, unfortunately, people can't get their act together. Like, letters should be a very, very simple thing to get out. So anyway, so the other thing that just is so aggravating about this, baby that was just born, that was born into one of those families. So, yeah, they wouldn't have had to been worrying about getting stopped by Pakistani police if, on the way to the hospital, if IDS had just done simple operations and, gotten letters to the people that needed them. And also the brother, um, his son is also one of the people, one of the kids that I teach in my class and not class, we do reading class in, uh, twice a week, but he's 17. And those two families, everybody has Pakistan visas except for the 17 year olds. His medical visa renewal was denied. And so we are in the middle of a mess right now because they don't have any approvals on any of those U.S. visas. They're still waiting for UNHCR approval. Um, they've had their first interview, but they did not get the cards there. And they do not have a visa for the 17-year-old, in, even in order to get a regular visa. But he would have to exit. They have to file an exit permit leave Pakistan, and then file for new visas. What is a 17-year-old supposed to do? Is he supposed to go back? I mean, it's a real concern because, you know, they actually do door-to-door -door checks, and they come in, and Pakistani police will, will actually go to homes and see who is living there, and they look for people and check visas. <laughs> it's actually happened. So what's going to happen if they get a house check by this Pakistani police and the 17 year old is the only one besides a baby that doesn't have a visa. I don't know. You tell me. IDS International is supposed to be the experts. What's going to happen to this, this 17 year old? Because what I read, um, not really good. They've had, they've known this for a long time. 
if child soldiers as young as conscripting ch children as young as uh, six, sex into the army. This is in an article uh, by the New York Times. So anyway, so that's where it's at. And we have people that make it a big deal about evacuations. Evacuations that won't get letters out. I bet it would cost you a whole lot less just to get the letters out than it would getting some of these people evacuated. But anyway, so that's the beginning of my, my Hall of Shame list. And um, we will see what comes up this next week. Um, I can't even remember now what else I was going to say, but I think there was something else. I'm probably forgetting it, but I'm a little riled up over that now. Uh, we have, oh, we do have, we do have one person that is uh, going to be going in for a UNHCR interview, or one family, um, next, the 29th, so Wednesday. So keep them in your prayers. We had, I'm not sure if um, the head of the house church, if his wife was able to get in for her application this interview this week because she actually had to, was someone that had to come back from Afghanistan. So I don't know if they got that in time. So we're still working on getting those applications, but also the final thing is just a reminder that uh, one of the options for them, the best option that we're working on is um, we are working on putting together sponsor groups for our family through Welcome Pour. And this is something that was just announced in January. You can go to welcomecore.org and um, get more information about it. But with Welcome Core, people can. So right now, it's a, a process. The process is normally. Let's go up to my slide for the refugee process. So normally, what has happened. Um, they get referred into the USRAP, the refugee program, either through that UNHCR approval, which is why it's, you know, people are so desperate to get it, and, or they go, are referred by an NGO or a U.S. Embassy. And then they go through this whole long process of vetting. And then once they get there, this is the, the, um, kind of the process once they get, get here. And in the placement, they have, there's a, basically it's with Welcome Course, a 90-day period where a local resettlement agency will find um, private groups or organizations or individuals that can help the refugee family get acclimated and settled. And show them around, help them, you know, basically kind of a welcome to America thing. And so that's what they normally do. And I mentioned before that Lakewood uh, did, was very involved in this during the first evacuation wave in 2021. They had, they helped resettle quite a few people, um, quite a few families in the area. I just read an article that Samaritan's Purse is doing the same and has been doing the same. And so the end is 
finding people that can help these these refugee families get situated. And so that in this current process, it's been the responsibility of that local resettlement agency to find those people, to put them into place. But with Welcome Corps, that in-group can nominate, not yet, but in a couple months, they're going to be able to nominate that family into the process to the beginning. So that once we get the end in place, they'll be able to get them in the front end. And this is what we're working on. And I'm, I'm trying to get the, the people together now. The reason for this is just so we can start preparing. Um, but also the other thing is I'm hoping that if we have our end sponsor in place that that will help maybe as our people are going through these uh, their UNH share rep interviews and let me say why do you need that if you're not going to stay in Pakistan uh, well the thing is until they leave they're at risk without a valid visa and the visas are very uh, there's been a lot of restrictions on them coming out at all so I'm hoping that if we could get the UNHCR applications, we won't have to worry about keeping Pakistan visas up to date while we're working working the process. That would be a huge relief. So trying to get those in place as soon as possible. So if you're interested in that, send me a message or if you want to like schedule a time for a chat, just let me know. We can talk a little bit more about it. Um, there is a lot of information on welcomecore.org. They have, it's very well lined out. Actually, the family that I was, was referring to, the siblings of our translator, that's actually what we're hoping the path that will actually end up moving. So she has three immigration visas, three different paths for them already, but she's also putting together an application for Welcome Corps so that hopefully that will move a little faster and if you're interested in like being because she has she has two families right that she's going to be sponsoring through welcome Corps. we're not quite sure if this is going to be if she can if she has five people if she's gonna need five i don't know if this makes sense we're not sure if she's gonna need five individual sponsors because each sponsor group has to be five individuals or an organization and we're not sure if that for her two siblings if she her same group of five can sponsor both or if we're going to have to attend people like two separate sponsor groups we're not quite sure of that. but she's in vancouver so if you're in that area and you want to say hey i want to be a part of this um i can connect you with sarah and um she's uh because she's getting things in place right now and um so we're hoping this one this one will move so anyway that's uh has been this week and um hoping for more um more good news all good news that's what i'm asking for all good news some peacefulness calmness and goodness coming in that's what i'm asking for for this next week and uh i don't know i'm kind of tired I, those live streams kind of wipe me out i'm not really sure why it's kind of i think it's kind of residue from that so anyway i hope you ha all have a great week and um i will see you next